Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the one and the only Teos Alpha Stream Abadia. Hello. How are you doing, Sean, my friend? What's going on? I am warm. I want to get this podcast done as quickly as possible so I can turn my fan back on. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, um, it, it's not that warm here, but it, it was earlier in the week. So, you know, it comes and goes. It does. It's, it's funny how weather works. Mm -hmm. It's also funny how D&D &D works. <laughs> so funny. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about some D&D &D news. And speaking of funny how it works, Amazon has yet again leaked the next not one, but two Wizards of the Coast D&D hardcover books. The D &D so if, if before, yeah. you, before you say, I just want to say, if anybody out there doesn't want these things spoiled, well, good luck avoiding it. But uh, just, you know, clip forward two minutes and, uh, and then you'll, you'll get past the titles. Yep. So if, if you're a D&D &D fan, you probably have seen this uh, elsewhere. But D&D uh, &D Live is set for July 16th and 17th, and this is where Wizards of the Coast usually announces what their next product or products will be. And Amazon, as they have done in previous years, uh, has put up a website showing what these products are. <laughs> uh, they are the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which will be a Feywild adventure that makes up their big fall hardcover that they uh, usually release in September. And then in November, they will be releasing a new setting for the Magic the Gathering crossover. This one is called Curriculum of Chaos, and it is uh, set in the Strixhaven setting for Magic the Gathering. So there you go, two, two new books. Uh, it doesn't, the page doesn't really say, or the pages on Amazon don't really say a heck of a lot about it. So we're not going to go any deeper than that, but you're looking for your, uh, your big September release, there it is. And then you're looking for the next setting, there it is. Yeah, and, and uh, perhaps sort of drumming up on this, there is a new series from D&D &D called um, Legend Lore, mm -hmm. where every day this week they've been, you know, in the future now, when, by the time you hear this, every day, they've every morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, they've been sharing various D&D &D news bits. Um, so I, I'll be curious to go back and hear these and see whether they address this because often they've tried to catch up with the news but so far as of the time that i had uh looked at their twitter feed and stuff they had not kind of confronted the reality of the amazon leak and, and interestingly a lot of my friends were saying they don't actually believe this is a leak like it's happened so much that they're now convinced that this is part of the process and i don't know what do you think sean like is this on purpose do they just say like i, I don't know i i I wouldn't imagine that wizards would want this done. If you right. want people to come to your D and D live, even for you know the first hour to to hear the announcements, if you you don't stay and watch the entire thing, so it sort of defeats the purpose for me of of having that D and D live, um, unless you think that you would get more people come and watch the adventures that are set there if they know what the setting is ahead of time so if the streams that they do are all set in the Feywild, then you would want to announce it ahead of time because you want people who are excited about the Feywild to go make an appointment viewing uh, so you know it's i don't know but i can't imagine that wizards 
is accidentally doing it right yep. so, okay and i and i did just see a tweet they did uh for part of this show say uh that the wild beyond the witch light is coming on september 21st more information will be presented at dnd live and they showed the alternate cover and the cover that Amazon had had spilled okay. the beans on. So yeah, so I guess they they have rushed forward and confronted the reality. But yeah, I agree with you. I I don't think this is planned. I think it's somehow. And and it also there was a time a while back where they they it was like they were trying to fight it. There was this like placeholder that was up and and right. But I it's it's got to be really frustrating because you have to work really hard on this message, right. and you want to put it out in a particular way and have it just. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and it, it goes back to who has the power in the relationship, right? If there's a mistake happening and Wizards has power over Amazon, Wizards can come down on them and say, you know, these are the consequences for your actions. I don't think that's the case here. I think Amazon doesn't really care what Wizards of the Coast says or does. They need their placeholder, you know, they need their thing at a certain time and date. And that's yeah. when Wizards has to get it to them. And then they just go ahead and do what they're going to do. So I, I, but I don't know. I think the answer, Sean, is pretty obvious. There is yeah. a fan of a different RPG who works at Amazon. There you go. And every release they go, ha ha, and they yeah. click the button. Click the button. Conspiracy. Yep. C conspiracy <laughs> theory. Uh, we, you know, everyone else is doing it. We may as well get, start our own uh, conspiracy theory chains here. This did, uh, does parlay into a question that we had from one of our Twitter followers. It was Dwayne Costa at Dwayne the DM who asked if the vast or with the vast plethora of 5e rules, settings, adventures, and supplements from Watsi, third party publishers, Kickstarters, and DMs Guild, it feels to me like 5e is nearing the point of supersaturation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on a future episode. Well, Dwayne, this is that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and we're in the future. We are in the future. Wow. Uh, and we'll be in the past someday. So uh, I think that saturation, it means different things to different people. And for some businesses, saturation is a problem. And for some businesses, saturation is the goal. So it, it all depends. Uh, and it really depends on the audience and your market in your market share. So if you only have a thousand customers and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing products to the point where someone of those thousand decide that they just can't keep up, that's bad because you probably need all 1000 of those customers. You don't want to lose them. If you have a thousand million customers, <laughs> you can turn that hose on and generally speaking, you are going to find someone who wants to buy it enough to the point that you are going to make money on the product. So while saturation and burnout is a threat, the threats alleviated by having this much larger customer base, which they have consumer base and a more diverse consumer base by, yeah. by slowing yeah. down their production, what they would be doing is, maybe selling more products in the long run, but they aren't taking advantage of this current trend of increasing sales, which is why they're moving quicker now because they know the sales are going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we've been reporting on this 
So every year is bigger and better in terms of both profit and revenue. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, any business person is going to look at that and say, well, make more. Yep. You know, if, if for some reason we hit the point where we drive things downwards, well, then we can put the, you know, take the, the right. foot off the pedal. But until then, I mean, make more. Why not? Yeah. Hire a few more staff, get some more freelancers, do more. And, and I think what, what they've been doing pretty cleverly is dividing up the types of products so that they hit on different threads, which speaks to what you're saying, right? When you have a wide enough audience and then you can hit the, the, magic, of the ga- magic of the Gathering book, mm-hmm. you can hit the main book, you can hit the Ghosts of Saltmarsh style book. And if you do enough of those in enough different ways and you do them well, mm-hmm. then it all should work out. Um, what, what you don't want to do is I think two things. One is what we had in second edition, which is that you divided up your market into almost competing segments of mm-hmm. your own fan base, right? To where there is no way your average person or even your super fan could buy Planescape, Birthright, Dark Sun, and on and on and on and all those worlds. You just couldn't buy all of it. Even buying one of it was hard. Right. And so you you just had all this product sitting on shelves, right? Yeah. That was way too much. And and nobody was properly watching the numbers. And so it just, and none of it was working financially. Mm-hmm. That was a disaster. And, and, it, and it's, it's funny because we older players look back on all those uh, additions as, as, or those settings as just being wonderful, right? I mean, Playscape was amazing. Dark Sun was amazing. Spelljammer was amazing. And really, most of it shouldn't have been made. Right. <laughs> we were lucky it did. Yeah. But the truth is, it did not go well for the company, all that wonderful creation. Um, and it should have been axed from an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm. You want a successful company, an RPG company, so you, you, you don't want them to make those kinds of missteps. The second thing I think where they can go wrong is that there has been a real engine to the way that they would announce a release that would get an excitement around mm-hmm. all of the RPG scene, but of, of course the D&D players, but just everybody would know that it was like Tomb of Annihilation year. Mm-hmm. And it really registered and permeated into the consciousness of players such that even if you'd never played Tomb of Annihilation, you couldn't help but know. a Acerarach, Chult, Dinosaurs, Jungle, Traps, like you knew these themes. And so it created a... a a super consciousness across the RPG space. And I think the recent years have not quite had that. Mm-hmm. As the number of releases increase, the understanding of that theme gets a little lost. And so that's a thing that I've been watching recently. You know, does it feel like rhyme season all year long? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it kind of doesn't. Yeah. You know, I think I think those of us really attuned, sure, we see that still permeating. I mean, Wizards is, or WizKids is about to release another mini set that's Frost-themed, right? right. So we, we can see some of that still happening. But we also see a lot of players who don't quite know what the current book is. And so the more that we release, the more, the more that there's that chance that the theme of it misses. And that's a problem because D&D makes a lot of its money through branding and right. through this larger consciousness. And you don't want to lose that larger consciousness of what's taking place. Yeah. Yeah, it's very true that the more books you put out, the more diverse they have to be, and that waters down that that theme, that brand for for the year. But Wizards has been doing a much better job than they have in the past, or yeah. TSR, in 
syncing up their adventures league content with the seasons and you know going out of their way to to do a little bit more pr work on those themes so it has been uh better than it has been in the past as well and it always comes back to me as the question of why did 5e succeed it succeed so well is that and people will argue well it was because the rules are really really good some people will say the rules are the rules it was streaming right it was the streaming that that did it some people say it just you caught the right generation at the right time right the people that started with you know D in the late 70s early 80s they're now having kids and they now have disposable income and it's just the right time for them to want to teach their kids. So that just happened to, to all sync up. And so, which is true. Well, none of them and all of them. Right. And yeah. I will never forget. I asked once I was talking to a professional poker player and I asked him, what's the percentage of skill versus luck to succeed? And he said, well, I'll tell you, it's 90% luck and 90% skill. <laughs> And, you know, and of course you stop and you're like, wait a second, Uh you start doing the math in your head. And, but it's very true, right? Because it's all, it's all percentages. You don't know anything for sure in poker Mm -hmm. and you don't know anything for sure in publishing, but you just want to get those odds as much in your favor as possible to let the luck happen. Yeah. And let the skill come through. And yeah, well, and and that's where you look at uh, the reviews of, say the the Ravenloft Van Richten's guide that we'll get into later and they're really good right I mean people aren't saying oh this is a weak book they're saying this is an excellent book there's a lot of great writing here a lot of good advice mm-hmm. well then you know it's not hurting them to create more right, right. If, that, if that happens often enough so sure yep yeah and, yeah and when we did our show where we reviewed um not only rhyme we took a look at, at rhyme after we'd done our full review, but we also looked at prior hardbacks and, and how DMs who'd run a lot of these, right? So they had the perspective of having seen a lot of these five eBooks, you know, what did you think about them? And they really didn't rank any of them particularly poorly. True. And that's a huge testament to wizard's ability to, to hit a fairly high level of quality, right? That, mm-hmm. that, yeah. yeah. Giving the, giving the DMs and the players what they want. It, it's well, I'm excited to hear more about these releases when they when they you know officially start talking about them, giving us details. I'm excited. Yep. Um, they're they're subjects that I could see being really great experiences. So that's yep. exciting. And we'll keep you updated via our news. Uh, next, Wizards actually announced something that they're going to publish, and that was <laughs> the Dungeon Master Screen Dungeon Kit. Uh, I am not a huge uh, user of dm screens being mm-hmm. so short i can't see over them so uh so i i don't really pay much attention to them but teos i know has his finger on the pulse of this so i i, I strangely love dm screens um there's something to me iconic about the dm sitting behind the screen and i think i still always go back to being a kid and looking at that first dm i had behind that screen and it looks so official and so cool like if you're going to shoot a movie of a DM or a TV show, like you want a screen on it. Uh, and so I, I love collecting screens. I, I have almost all of them uh, across the years. Um, and, and I love just even switching a screen that has nothing to do with what I'm running just because it looks so good. You know, you just put a big spell jammer screen out or whatever, and it's just so much fun to just change it up and have characters sort of laugh. Um, 
so here comes another screen and I'm a sucker. I am all for this, <laughs> but it's a lot more than a screen. This is a product that's a lot like that uh, wilderness kit that came out last November. Um, and I have to admit, I didn't super love that. I mean, it offers a lot to different people. And, and so maybe I'm not the quite the right person for it. And it'll be interesting to see if I'm the right person for this. But there's a lot here, right, Sean? Oh, yeah. It looks like there is a ton of things involved. So we're talking about not only tables for uh, dungeon delving, I guess, is the uh, is the theme for this. So yeah. uh, there's tables for monster encounters for exploring ruins and dungeons. They, they are giving you the geomorph cards, dungeon geomorph cards. So sort of create your own dungeon on the fly, uh, putting these cards together. Uh, what else is on the screen? I'm you have a double-sided dry erase sheet so that you can, I guess, use it as sort of a map or you know, to sketch out things. Uh, a numbering grid for sketching maps on one side. A summary of the main actions a character can take in combat on the other. Um, 18 illustrated punch-out condition cards, including mold and slime cards for dungeon encounters. I'm guessing this is like your brown mold, you know, those mm -hmm. kinds of things that appear in the DMG as traps, but are really sort of monstery. Yeah. So that's good to have. Yeah. Uh, and then something, you know, I always enjoy initiative cards. Yeah. Um, so these are punch out numbered and illustrated initiative cards to easily track the turn order for players, monsters, and non-player characters. Uh, shout out to, um, friend of the show, Paul Ellison, who sort of pioneered this in the living Greyhawk days. Um, and you get all of that for 25 bucks, which I was uh, for fun looking up pricing. And this is something I hadn't really thought about. The price of everything in 5e has basically been the same from the launch of 5e on. Mm -hmm. So all books are 49.95 or 99, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Everything that's sort of like this is 24.99. Like it's always yeah. been the same pricing. And if you look at, there are a couple aberrations like Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, it was a different price because mm -hmm. maybe right. it's thinner. Yeah. But by and large, they have like, you know, three prices they use for everything, and yeah. which I thought was really kind of interesting. Yeah, it just shows that they have found what they think is the perfect price point based on their audience and based on the content that they're providing. And they haven't yeah. deviated from it. So uh, they're, they're getting what they want, it sounds like. Yep. And... Uh, yeah, so we'll have a link in the show notes to more information on the DM screen uh, dungeon kit. More news from the set of the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Uh, mm. Roger Jean Page has teased his upcoming role uh, in an interview with Variety magazine. He talked about not being much of a D&D player growing up, but uh, he has listened to a couple of D&D podcasts in his time. He should have just came out and said our name, Teos. I know. We know he was thinking it and, yeah. uh, you know, shout out, yeah. you know, Paige, you rock. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Exactly. Uh, he also talks about playing Diablo as a teenager and always playing a paladin. And he says, that's just what I do. And I know what that means to a degree. So, you know, everyone's now like, oh, he's playing a paladin in the movie. Uh, I, not necessarily. Uh, yeah. But he also talked about watching his friends play uh, Baldur's Gate, uh, the video game. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also has talked about recruiting friends to give him a crash, crash course on uh, Dungeons and Dragons and how it's been fun learning on the job uh, about the game. 
And he talked about being drawn to the project based on the script, which is heartening to hear. I don't know yeah. if that's just something every actor has to say, but he th predicts that it will be a huge sigh of relief for D&D fans everywhere. Noting that in the post um, MCU, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe world, genre storytelling has been elevated as an art form. So uh, this film will step up and continue to raise that bar. That's sort of what, what we want to see, right? We want. Yeah, I mean, that's. For, it tells me two things. One is, you know, it's great to hear that he likes the script, but as you said, that could just be a thing that you say. But the second part tells me that they've had conversations about how D&D &D fans have been let down in the past. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, I, I think that's important to be actively thinking like, we're not going to let them down this time. That's how I would be looking at it if I were there. And so I'm glad to hear that. That means a lot to me that they're taking it seriously, right? They feel responsible for it. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it is a good sign. Uh, so with the beginning of a new thing, the movie comes an end to an old thing, which is Critical Role Season 2. Uh, it ended its 141st episode, its second season, on June 3rd with a seven-plus-hour final game. <laughs> Not since I've been 12. Uh, well, I can't say that. I go to conventions and play for yeah. like 16 hours straight. So who am I, who am I to laugh at a seven-plus-hour final game? Uh, so what is up next then for Critical Role, Teos? Yeah, well, the next thing is the clash between the two teams of adventures they have, uh, Vox Machina and Mighty Nine. They are going to rumble, these the two season teams, uh, on Friday, June 18th, 7 p.m. on both Twitch and YouTube. This was the like $3 million stretch goal from their $11.3 million <laughs> Kickstarter in 2019 that there would be this sort of uh, encounter that would take place. It's a level 15 four by four PVP fight to the death, each side having four characters. Matt Mercer is the DM and then Talison Jaff is playing both sides. Um, so that should be interesting to see uh, how that kind of comes across to everybody, the, the idea of this PVP. Uh, Speaking encounter. of seven plus hours of gaming, <laughs> that's what you're talking about there, probably. That could very well be, yeah, oh, yeah. depending on what kind of tactics they use. Yep. Uh, and, and that's the thing. They play so much that they know their characters well, so it'll be interesting. And, and of course, it forces different uh, members to be on different sides, and, and so that'll be interesting, too. Yep. Um, and then beyond this, Critical Role has, you know, ended this season saying, hey, we're going to soon reach out and reveal what comes next, uh, including some sort of a secret project. So people are speculating all kinds of things, right? I mean, Critical Role, the company, they've started, um, you know, the new uh, Darrington Press uh, group that has published. Now their first board game is out mm -hmm. um, and they have other things planned. And one of the things we saw when you and I talked about this is they didn't have an obvious, like, this is our critical role RPG. Right. Um, they had some ideas around sort of a storytelling system and things like that, but no nothing that really said, this is what critical role is going to move to. And, and you, the, of course, the speculation goes there. Would they say, bye-bye D&D, right. here we go, critical role RPG, um, but no, that, you know, who knows? I, I, I don't know that they'll do that. I think that's probably not what we would hear. Um, then others say, would Matt Mercer step down for a bit, you know, to take a break from it? I mean, yeah, let's this was 141 episodes. The other one was like 400 or something. It was, yeah. it was absolutely insane. And so 
Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Whatever they do, we know it's going to have an, a big footprint on this hobby. So for sure, uh, I mean, the business ramifications—not only, you know, the entertainment value for fans is is huge, right? What are they going to do? Mm. But business, yeah. right? This this goes right to that question we started with, which is why did Five E thrive? <laughs> you know, yeah. and and if it if Critical Role had a major impact on that, what does walking away from D and D and going to a new or different game uh bring to the table so yeah. we will be keeping a close eye on that uh new games uh on the topic of such marvel is launching its official marvel multiverse rpg uh it will be launched as a play test in 2022 with a full release in 2023 uh the game's primary author is Matt Forbeck. He's worked on many D&D properties, uh, the Marvel Encyclopedia, Shotguns and Sorcery, Deadlands, the Lord of the Rings RPG, uh, video game writing, many, many novels, including like 12 in one year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Matt Forbeck is, is amazing. So yep. you know, whenever you hear one of those things, I know you and I as designers, we can't help but go like, all right, who made it? Yep. And when you see a name like Matt Forbeck, you're like, okay, yep. we're good. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's true. And what is this D six one six system? Yeah, uh, an all new D six one six system, which uh, caused speculation that we're going to get like six hundred sixteen side dice or something. But um, <laughs> accessible, easy to learn system for newcomers to tabletop RPGs and a natural evolution for those familiar with the most popular tabletop role playing games on the market. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what that is. Uh, they did say use might, agility, resilience, vigilance, ego, and logic, clearly the attributes, mm -hmm. to win the day and discover your true abilities as you face impossible odds. That what, what I found most interesting here is that they're going to have this playtest rule book, which kind I can only imagine is going to be for sale, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in next year. Right. And then the actual game in 2023. So, so it'll be interesting to see how fans like that. I think you always have to be careful with that. You want to create the buzz while getting the feedback, but not have people feel like they're being taken. You know, like I, right. I think that like Pathfinder 2 selling that the Pathfinder 2 playtest version yeah. felt a little bit like, you know, we're, 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 we're making, we're padding the coffers, right? It, it can, right. It can f come off that way, whether it's yeah. true or not. Yeah. Um, so I, I will, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the price point of this version is. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's free. I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm expecting that it'll be a price point. And, yep. And, and just what they do to, to get an audience is always important because what this offers to all of us, well, of course is maybe a fun superheroes game. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it used to be a TSR game, the Marvel, right. uh, but now this is another possible gateway that could bring in a huge number of fans. And, and if this is, I mean, it is a Marvel product, right? Marvel's behind it. If they push it, if they advertise it, if we see this on, I know there aren't Saturday morning cartoons, but you know, if we see this on various formats being uh, promoted, mm -hmm. it could bring a ton of people into the hobby. Yeah. So, I mean, how, I many people, that happens. how many people are going to watch the premiere of Loki uh, on you know right. on Netflix coming up soon, or watched uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So it, it'll be interesting, uh, yeah. as as all our news tends to be. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, a Kickstarter watch. Uh, the wonderful Web DM team 
in the future or in your past, as you listen to this, will have launched a Kickstarter on June 9th. This is called Weird Wastelands, and it is a supplement for 5e that gives you everything you need to play games in adversely affect places, places adversely affected by magical forces. So seas boiling with arcane energy, titans uh, that ignored the land's cries for deliverance, and heroes forging a new way forward. They're going to have new subclasses, um, a new druid subclass that deals with this sort of broken land, uh, mechanical support for wilderness travel and resource management. Um, so if you are a fan of the WebDM team, they have a great uh, podcast. They have a great stream. Uh, I'm, you know, it's one, I don't watch a lot, but I do watch uh, them. So they, you know, great design minds and it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes for them. So if you are into such things, you can find that Kickstarter link in our show notes. Yeah. I couldn't help but think about dark sun when I was uh, reading this and, and, and uh, I know that they are fans of dark sun. So wouldn't shock me if it has some of that idea of what, how to use that as a crucible for storytelling, that kind of apocalyptic, you know, the land's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm excited to see what this, this is all about. Yeah. So we will know more by the time this show drops. Finally, we will now get on with the show in terms of discussion of Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Last time we started looking at chapter four. Uh, Yes, we did skip the first three chapters. Don't worry, we will go back and talk about them. (laughs) But we wanted to discuss chapter four because it sort of got into the uh, got deep into the weeds about running horror adventures. And it seemed to us that this was actually a the best place to start our discussion to look at what makes horror adventures tick and how to treat them differently than regular adventures. And that's what we talked about last time. So this time we're going to get into the mechanics, the tools, uh, you know, those bits that this book provides to help you as the DM and, and you as the player play with these tools and these mechanics in your horror game. Yeah, and it starts with the Taroka deck and Spirit Board. Um, the they they kind of have a page that covers both of these, and it's a little funny because more space is given to the Taroka deck, but there's no deck in this book. Um, for that, you have to go to either your 1983 i6 Ravenloft copy or your 2016 Curse of Strahd or the revamped box set, which includes large format cards or Gale Force Nine sells a deck of small cards. Um, all perfectly reasonable ways to get a, a copy of the various cards. Um, and then you can use the rules here. But the point of the rules, right, is that this deck lets you have a fortune teller predict the future, read the fates of the characters. And what that does is, you know, if you get this particular card read to your player, to your character, you now expect that to happen. And the game has hooks so that something will, will be based on that, right? It, it can be the location of an important item or something like that is driven by these card results, which is one of the genius pieces of the original Ravenloft adventures, starting out with this and getting you excited about what your character is going to do and making you feel important. Um, so it just addresses that original, you know, in, in, from an overall perspective. And it does say that the deck originated in Barovia, but you can it can be found now in all domains. Yeah, so... Again, that's a 
it's a cool tool uh, to bring out that sort of second sight uh, aspect of of the horror of, of D&D in general, but also of the horror genre. They also give us the spirit board. So this is very much like a Ouija board, a tool to contact and divine the will of the spirits and other mysterious forces. So if you've seen a Ouija board in the past, you know what you're getting here. There is a planchette, uh, which is you know the, the little thing that moves around the board with a hole in the center. So you can read words or letters or numbers through it. And then, you know, you can just use it, whether you're the DM to uh, deliver information, deliver story, deliver plot points, uh, or, you know, as a player to, to sort of be along for the ride with it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, a different spin on, on the Taroka deck because they have some of the same symbols, some of the same meanings behind it. Yeah, we get a full page image of the spirit board uh, on the uh, in the appendix, sort of the last page of the book. Uh, one thing I don't know is sometimes wizards will put handouts on their uh, product page. I don't think they've put a handout for this, but I, I hope that they will because this is the kind of thing that you want to be able to print a nice uh, high resolution image of if you're going to use it, mm -hmm. rather than um, you know try to take your book to a photocopier or something like that and yeah. destroy the spine on it. So if it isn't there, hopefully they will create a version of it. Um, I did see when Roll Tenny was kind enough to give me a version of the of this book for review. Um, in the Van Richten's Roll Twenty version, there is a setup page that has the spirit board and a movable planchette so that you can do that online, which is kind of cool to, uh, to move it around and, yeah. and use it, which is cool. Yeah. It's funny because the, the Ouija board is symbolically take away all of the like commune with the dead aspect of it. A, a Ouija board is very much like a D and D game, right? Everyone has their hand on the story <laughs> and it's move it. They're moving it. But there's probably one person that's really moving it. <laughs> yeah. Although if more than one person wants to you know, override what that one person is doing, they can certainly do that. Uh, so it, it's a, you know, it's, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah. Just as a, as a uh, motif for, for what D and D is. I wonder if you could do something like that where you like, you know, to have the players all hold on to this planchette and, and would they write their own adventures somehow? You know, like, yeah. what would happen? That'd be really fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so interesting. Uh, yeah, and then I guess the idea, well, this when we look at the sample adventure, the sample adventure will take it into account. So it's mm -hmm. just kind of smart of them to do that. Showcase yeah. your new technology uh, <laughs> in the adventure. Exactly. So before... Uh, that's the two actual physical tools or physical sets of tools that, that are uh, referenced by the book. Now we get to the game mechanical tool set. Um, the first is curses. So curses are something that are already in D&D. It's a spell. But as it is in D&D, it's sort of anticlimactic. Um, Very much so. So what this section does is talk about creating more dramatic curses. Uh, these curses are meant to be very meaningful, plot-driven experiences that aren't 
that don't happen in a round and then you remove the next round. Yeah. Um, and so they, they actually take you through the steps of the best way to deliver the curses and then the mechanics behind what the curse does. Uh, do you want to talk about the, those? Yeah, I, there, you know, I like the design of this and, and actually all of this section I was, I, I thought is pretty fresh design and it is true. Like you said, curse, the, the, the curse spell is, it's a letdown. It's, it's not kind of as powerful it should be. And I, I believe it requires concentration. Um, I'd have to actually look it up to, to check, but, um, but it, it's, it's disappointing. And if you've run a hag, you know, the first thing you think is, oh, I'm going to curse the characters. You know, that'll be, you know, bestow a curse. That's what I'm going to cast. Um, yeah, it's concentration. And it, it's things like, you know, you have disadvantage on attack rolls. And frankly, no hag should be spending an action on that when they're in, they've got monsters, you know, when they've got player characters in their face. Um, and what this does is change it up in a really cool way and have really broad application. So each curse is now resistant to normal magic, like remove curse and greater restoration. Such magic could only temporarily lessen it. So you might get a day reprieve or, you know, for some amount of time, lose the curse, and, but then you're going to regain it. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of the curse is you can apply it based on whatever you think the story trigger should be. And that should be something that is obvious to the players. So great example is the sarcophagus that has writing around it that says, you know, they who open up the sarcophagi will be forever cursed, right? Something like that. So you yeah. kind of know like, well, if I do this, this is going to happen. <laughs> you see it coming. Yep. And, and each curse has these different components. The pronouncement is that sort of warning. Um, it could be a priest that warns you that if, you know, if you slay me, uh, my, my goddess shall... Uh, forever taint you something like that so you kind of get this feeling and, and you you understand that maybe you could do something to to avoid it and i like that a lot the idea that there's always this pronouncement mm -hmm. because it it creates story and decision and choice and that's really fun yeah. Yeah. um then the burden part of it is the mechanical impact of the curse and we get a bunch of examples and um there are a wide variety here that are that are given to us, but it's things like you have vulnerability to a damage type or undead are haunting you, hunting you. Um, some of them are pretty rough. So, you know, you get a, a, a breadth to choose from here. And then there's the resolution, how to end the curse, which is usually by making amends in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the use of a curse as a consequence for actions because that is one of the, things that makes D D, you know a different game than everything else is you can make a variety of different choices but the consequences of those choices are can be widely varied mm -hmm. and so having a curse that does that right you could take the shortcut to win whatever you're trying to do get to your goal but here yeah. here is a consequence and and i love to being able to do that and then having the resolution actually match the curse rather than just be a random spell uh, is, is great. Uh, yeah, this I, reminds me of uh, you recently, you and I were recently talking about an old ashes of Athos adventure that did a number of fun things. And I remember when I ran the play test, there was this sarcophagus that when you did this thing and it was related to fire in some way, uh, you got a boon. Mm -hmm. And when I ran this play test, the player said, you know what you should do? You should do it that if they try to do it again, 
they get a bane. Yes. Because as soon as as the other players see this, one player got a benefit, they're all going to try to do this thing. Yep. Uh, and so we did. We put that in the adventure that there would be, you know, when another player tries to, like, say, break another sarcophagus, then you get this bane, this kind of curse. And it was hilarious because it happened at, like, every table because all the players would go, like, oh, I want to get some power of fire. <laughs> Instead, I, they'd get this, like, necrotic... Yeah. thing they dealt with i can remember right. very little from that long ago but i remember that and i remember exactly <laughs> what you're talking about and i remember every table i ran someone and tried it yeah, yep for sure it's great right and that's the kind of thing where like there is this there can be easily be this warning and then this piece and that's fun this is the kind of stuff you talk about in D. &D. Yep. and i think when we were old when we were you know when we were young long ago in the olden days curses were were in the form usually of treasure Mm -hmm. And it was a way of balancing out our greed because we always wanted whatever we could get our hands on. Yep. And that knowledge that sometimes what you got your hands on would be a spear that would be a backbiter and attack you, you know, bend around and actually yeah. do the attack roll against you. That was uh, quite terrifying, and, and, but also fun in its own way. But I don't think that fun has aged well. Yeah. And I think this is a nice way to sort of substitute it in. Yeah. When I was reading this, I hearken back to the grim hollow campaign guide because they have a section on curses in, in there and while i work for for uh ghostfire now i did not write the campaign guide or work on it but they have a sort of thing that i would have loved to see here too in addition to all of this stuff uh is a progressive curse so yeah. when you get it it's sort of low uh powered it's it's a slight annoyance so all right I will deal with it down the road. I'll, you know, I minus one when I roll, you know, my hit die to regain uh, hit points. Not a big deal. I can survive with that. Oh, a week passes. Oh, wait a second. Now this is happening. It's a little worse. Now you're getting that dread of what if I, what now what's going to happen if I don't stop this? I see what's going to happen. So now we need to deal with it or not. What are the yeah, consequences yeah. of not dealing with it? Um, and instead of uh, instead of resolving it by just to remove curse, what the Ghostfire uh, Grim Hollow curse system does is you need you still have to cast remove curse, but you need a specific component or components. So for every stage that the curse goes through, you need one more component, and the component is something tied to the curse. So, That's cool. you know, it's, it's right. It's along these same lines. And if I was going to run this, I would combine these two uh, things to really make it, uh, make it a, a plot driving uh, aspect of the game. Yeah. This also makes me think of the fourth edition disease rules, which were actually quite fun where you could go along this progression and have different effects of the disease of how bad it was and you could sort of go back and forth but unfortunately reality and play was usually someone would just remove the cur the right. uh, disease yeah and and you just skip this table which was really sort of lame um but that kind of idea that progression that's that's a fun idea yeah you know we get these four example curses here and and i, I like them they they this is I, I love that they gave the four examples and they're it's ancient seal which is like you know breaking the seal of a sarcophagus or door or whatever yep. broken vow which is some sort of oath that you're breaking final breath when someone dies and they curse you 
uh, innocent blood. Um, these are all really good ways of showcasing the types of curses. Mm -hmm. But what I would have liked is a little more guidance of how to use the curses in play mm -hmm. um, to have a, a big effect. Um, so I, I haven't looked at the adventure yet. So I'm curious whether they, they give you some of that because I think that guidance is really important. Right. Um, because it yeah, is a balance. A lot of fun to play with. It, yeah. it is a balance of you don't want it to totally devastate the character, but you don't want it to be inconsequential either. You know, you want to strike right. that balance. And that's why a progressive one um, does both. And, and the big part of why you want, you know, the reason why there's this pronouncement versus burden resolution is to make this not be an on-off switch of like, oh, I have minus two to attacks. So I'm going to cast, remove, curse, I'm done. Yeah. That, that has no flavor or story to it and therefore doesn't resonate with us as players or DM. And by creating these different steps, we interact with it. Right? We see the bold words carved above the threshold of the door that's sealed with lead. Mm -hmm. Do we break that? Do we go somewhere else? Do we find some other way, right? Maybe we could outwit it by, you know, teleporting through or whatever. But, you know, it forces us to interact and think and discuss. And so then when we hit that burden, now that story is reinforced and then resolving it is this thing that should be interesting. And they do have some of these examples that are kind of great where you think about like, well, how would I try to resolve this curse? And I might not be entirely sure. And I would have loved some guidance that you know, to say like, you know, downtime, for example, is an excellent way to research how to mm -hmm. end a curse. Right. Um, or should you just be able to roll some skills to get the understanding? And, and that's something for DMs to play with and think through, because again, the whole point is to create this interaction. So you don't want it to take two seconds. You want this to, to be a, a something that they deal with over time. Mm -hmm. So past curses, there is also a section on fear and stress. So uh, while curses are plot-driven, fear and stress are really driven by mechanics, although there can be role-playing elements to them. Um, so they, they provide you with a list of uh, fears that they call seeds of fear. And so these are things like, I can't stand dark places. I can't stand heights. Uh, being around crowds unnerves me, for I always feel judged. So these are things that might trigger fear in or stress in the character. And then as these things occur, there are mechanics for dealing with fear or dealing with stress. And before we talk about fear and stress specifically, they also mention in the book that if role played well, even though you are going to use fear and stress as a, as a penalty later, you can, can and should provide inspiration to the player for playing it well, which will then later at least slightly offset the penalties from the fear and the stress. Right, right. So do you want to talk about anything there? Go into fear? Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot here that um, I didn't love these seeds of fear. Mm -hmm. um, in that this is a case where they, they kind of almost say, oh, roll on this table. That's your seed of fear. When I think the main guidance that would be interesting is come up with your fear. If you can't think of one, mm -hmm. then roll on this table or use this table as examples. But, but it, it, you know, I, I guess it says you can choose up to two seeds of fear during character creation. But I, I think this is where you want to come up with your own. And, and it reminds me of when 
we played AD&D, there used to be a character sheet we used and, and it was one of the official ones. And on it, it had a little slot that was like character fears. Yeah. And we would always, in our DM, you know, whoever was DMing, we'd always force people to fill that out and we'd write it down. And we'd choose something like, you know, spiders or whatever. And then when those things came up, usually, you know, you were in really bad situation. But it was part of the fun that there yeah. was that fear out there that could that could happen. Um, yeah, I don't, I, this part seemed a little hard for me to grasp exactly how they want you to use this or come up with this in a way that's going to be palpable and engaging right. for the characters. And and the one of the issues is there's different kinds of players. And some players want to put their fears down right from the start and they want to role play them heavily from the beginning. And then there's some people that, you know, write down their flaw when they're building their character, if they even bother to write down a flaw, you know, on the official sheet where it has personality <laughs> traits, you know, flaws, yeah. you know, so they write something down, but they never even look at it, much less play it. Um, for, for the, the latter kind of player, sometimes having the fear develop from the game rather than during creation uh, is, is more um, emblematic, is, is, is better, resonates better with them. So, you know, if the first thing that dropped their character unconscious during play was, you know, a giant spider, now I have a fear of spiders for that reason. Yeah. Uh, so depending on the type of player that you're dealing with DMs, you may want to, you may want to do it during character creation. What do you fear? You may want to wait and say, Hey, you know what? This just happened. You just failed your save against a troglodyte stench. Now you have a fear of strong odors. That's um, a neat idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And yeah. Or either way works. Or just, you know, at the end of the first session, sit down and say of everything you encountered and you tell them at the beginning of the session, Hey, during this session, think of a thing that happens here that becomes that it turns out to be one of your fears mm -hmm. yeah. and then it can be whatever and, and that could that can actually be a lot of fun because maybe you know you get uh you know crit on and you decide well it's being you know on on the threshold of death or it's spiders or whatever and so then that can be fun to play through that and you don't act have to activate these all the time right but um yeah, and did we talk about the... I don't think we mentioned the rules for this, did we? We have not mentioned the rules of fear or stress yet. Yeah. You want to talk about fear? I would love to. So when the thing that triggers your fear happens, you must make a DC seven, uh, 17, a DC 15 wisdom saving throw. If you fail, you become frightened until the end of your next turn. Frightened, of course, gives you disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls while you can see the thing that you're afraid of and you can't mo move toward the source of that fear. Uh, I, it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's just at low levels, DC 15 is very high, so you're always going to be frightened. At high levels, you always have a hero's feast going. You all, always have a paladin or something <laughs> like a paladin with an aura that keeps you from being frightened so it loses its its um you know rigor at that point so yeah. i would much rather have a scaling dc and give it some more teeth for higher level characters yeah in fact something like that gives you immunity to fear i would say because this is so or to being frightened this is so visceral to you so integral to you that i would at best say you get advantage on it right i wouldn't 
I wouldn't wipe this away. And yeah. like you said, scaling the the saving throw is probably a good idea. You can look at what the CR chart and the DMG for what saving throw should be at various levels and use that. Yeah. Uh, or what traps are as well. You could use the the DC saving throw for traps, which escalates by by level of care of the party. So yeah, use something like that so that it's a little more. Um, yeah, and 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 I think you don't want this to be. Oh, I made my check. I'm fine, right? Like yeah. you want this to be a role playing scene and sort of a spotlight moment for the character, right? So, yeah, this is this is yeah. a little. It goes it back quite to that. For me. It goes back to that old saying, you know, bravery isn't a lack of fear, right? Bravery yeah. is overcoming the fear that you have, and I want I want that to play out in my game, right? I don't yeah. want it to just be I'm not afraid of anything because I'm tenth level or because I, I'm a paladin, or, right? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so that's the fear mechanic. Uh, the stress mechanic is a little different. So as stressful things occur, you gain a minus one to all attack rolls, ability checks, and saving throws per stress point that you have accumulated. So you're in a stressful situation, you get a stress point minus one. If you go into a different situation that's also stressful before removing your first stress point stress point you now have two stress points and a minus two on attack rolls ability checks and saving throws um, so this can be something that's triggered by your seeds of fear it can be a difficult situation you know anything that you would find stressful uh, they give examples of either fear or stress seeing a monster that you realize can kill or knock you unconscious with one blow um, could trigger stress or fear. So things like that. Uh, yep. What did you think of the stress mechanic? The one thing I'd want guidance wise here is, is, you know, and they do give guidance at the beginning of this whole section, sort of don't overdo these things. And, and that is really important here because you, being in the domain, any of these domains of dread, you're going to, well, that's stressful. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, so minus one is just going to keep piling up because it's all stressful. So, so you have to kind of think as DM, when do I want to say this is over and above the, oh, you're in the domain of dread and this is terrible. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it, for me, it's a really cool tool you could use for specific situations. Like if we're exploring a haunted house and we know that, you know, the moment that we learn that something is haunting us or hunting us um, or that calamity is impending, that's where turning on the stress mechanic could be really cool. Or even in a particular encounter, if there's like a ticking clock, I mean, it could be a literal like sand clock that, you know, is dropping the sands to run out and you're trying to run around the encounter doing something while there's this very little time left having those minus ones keep ratcheting up the challenge yeah. could be really fun right and then when you succeed then you can get your reward like inspiration or whatever and and, and it can all reset that's kind of fun and so i i would as a dm think about where is it that i could really heighten things through this mechanic and have it really make sense when it starts and when it ends mm -hmm. Now, to get rid of stress, they give the following examples. A character who spends an entire day relaxing or in otherwise calm circumstances can reduce their stress score by one when they finish their next long rest. Uh, calm emotions will suppress charmed and frightened conditions, also suppressing uh, one's stress score for the duration of that spell. 
So just for, you know, that brief moment that common emotions is going. Uh, a lesser restoration spell reduces the target stress score by one, while greater restoration reduces a character's stress score back to zero. So I like this idea of a new use of downtime days. Yeah. Yeah, I've got three stress points. I want to make this magical armor, but I also don't want to have minus three on all my stuff. So I'm going to take three days and just relax. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great, I, I want to use that in, in, in everything now. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, this can also be, this sort of stress mechanic can also be um, something that goes above and beyond, you know, exhaustion, which doesn't work so well. Mm -hmm. So trying to work through, say, like explore the dangerous woods and make it through to the village uh, could be something that, you know, each day could pile on this stress mm -hmm. uh, as you're trying to make it through, you know, spider infested woods or something. And when you get to the end, then you can rest in the village and it all can go away after a few days. And that, that could be a neat way to do it. Yep. So overall, it's I think both of these are useful tools. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, use them sparingly at first see how they work in your game, and then uh, adjust from there. Two more things to discuss about horror adventure tools. One is haunted traps. So a haunted trap is sort of like a normal trap, but uh, supernatural rather than mechanical. So there are rules given for uh, finding them. And if you find them, you can then act to disable them, to get out of range of them, uh, you know, various rules are given in, in that sense. Usually the detecting is a passive perception uh, wisdom check uh, of 10 plus the traps haunt bonus, which can range. For, I think they there was a zero I saw and then like up to six. I don't know if there was any higher than six. But uh, these are think about walking into a haunted house and you feel a cold draft. That would be this sort of haunted trap and then you can do something uh, to disarm it rather than using th using thieves tools or dispel magic you can instead use things like channel divinity or remove curse uh, to to disarm them and then you normally as you would with a regular trap get a saving throw uh, on a failure uh, let, let me rephrase that how does the haunt work there with the saving throw <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it is the um, the haunt that's rolling the saving throw against your your feature. So gotcha. if you have uh, Channel Divinity, normally Channel Divinity has a DC. So right. it the trap is rolling a D twenty plus its haunt bonus against your save. It, it gotcha. is sort of backwards it's logic. Yeah. Um, you could also give the die to your player and say like you roll you want low because you're rolling for the trap right. of how strong your thing was right like it's an inverse yep. roll um and and if you've if the trap fails it's disarmed for 24 hours if it fails by more than 10 it's permanently disarmed mm -hmm. and, and there then, might be another way to yeah yeah they might have a plot way to do it uh you know such as performing some act that will pacify whatever the haunting spirit is uh you know is all agitated about then they give some examples of haunted traps the dance macabre the faceless malice the icon of the lower aerial kingdoms and morbid memory so you know these are sort of your spooky uh supernatural traps rather than like i said mechanical ones uh 
anything else about traps before we move on to survivors? I totally love this. I like yeah. that uh, this is sort of something that we saw in third edition a lot where clerics would channel their divinity to get past something. Mm-hmm. Um, be- that was a, a staple of many sort of situations. Right? There'd be a door that'd be full of necronic energy and you would channel your holiness into it and, and overwhelm it. Uh, so I, I, I like I like all everything about this. I think it's really fun. Yeah. I think a lot of adventures do this anyway, just using the trap uh, yeah. mechanic. So, so good on them. And the last tool that they use is really interesting uh, and it's called survivors. Um, so what this is, is sort of something that your players can either interact with or actually play to step outside of their own characters and see the world and the game through the eyes and experiences of a survivor of horror survivor yeah. survival of a horror plot. Uh, and I think probably Teos, you would agree with me that this is awesome. And a lot of great yes. campaigns can start this way, not just horror campaigns, but any sort of campaign. Yeah, and, and they can start this way or suddenly switch to this. It's a great, great tool. Um, I did this in when I was running um, Tomb of Annihilation, where I sort of the, the, the players had this concept through downtime that they were creating this organization. And so the organization had hirelings. And at one point I said, you know, tomorrow you don't need your character sheets right when we play and instead i gave them out these very simple stat blocks and it was their hirelings in the training yard when yuan t attacked them in the city of port nianzaru and it led they had such a great time seeing kind of like how their hirelings were doing that it led to having a sort of b team that went through and handled various things in the jungles that they had not handled and What's great about it, and it's what's going on in these survivor's rules, is the idea that you just, for a couple of sessions, one to three sessions, are going to use these weaker characters. And specific to horror, this is awesome because your weaker characters might die. Mm-hmm. We don't expect them to be invulnerable uh, and, and resourceful the way that player characters are. They don't have treasure and endless resources and tons of spells and all that sort of stuff. They have very limited features based on these stat blocks we'll get. And so we we can we can threaten them. They can be overwhelming odds. It can be okay for them to all die or almost all die. And the players can know that beginning, uh, you know, from the beginning when they're interacting with this. And we get a lot of good advice on how to use them and some examples, like the idea of maybe you walk in and you see, you know, the end of a battle scene, right? With these sort of bodies strewn there and some village that tried to, you know, hold off wolves and Mm -hmm. uh, ghouls, whatever. Well, and then the moment we see this, we might see some spirits begin to rise and we switch to now playing that story out. Right. And now we're playing the survivors trying to mount a defense or escape the town. And then however many escape, well, maybe those are the ones that get to, they meet these NPCs that survived, if any. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great, it's a great way rather than sort of a lore dump or, you know, just as the DM saying, well, looking at the scene, you you can, with your survival check or your investigation check, figure out that you know these people hold up in this temple, uh, in their church in this small town, but they were overrun by, by undead, and so that was their end. Playing out that story just adds so much depth to the story. Uh, that it can't be overstated and a fun twist on this would be 
if you are about to run your characters through a dungeon with some like skeletons in the first room, play the skeletons for a session as different <laughs> adventurers come in and you know you you wipe them out. Um, and then you're you're giving the players clues about what they're going to see later. Yeah. Maybe there's a trap yeah. in the room that the the skeletons can ascertain as they're playing this oh uh, yeah uh, you know one of the one of the pcs that you're fighting just ran into this corner and blew up <laughs> oh now we know something's you know it's yeah it's, yeah it's you a, could learn the it's clear. an interesting twist yeah that's a fun way to do it i love everything about this because i think that especially in longer campaigns we we get into that rut of my character my power you know all mm-hmm. this sort of stuff and and when you are forced to sort of have this out of body experience into another character, it, it's it's like a new, it's like a mini game within a game, and it's it's super fun and flavorful. Yep. Um, we get four stat blocks for these: the apprentice, the sneak, the disciple, the squire. So it's basically fledgling wizard, fledgling priest, cleric, uh, you know, young rogue, young warrior. Um, and and so they're pretty weak. Like you know, the apprentice, which is the wizard type, has seven hit points. Uh, the squire, which is the wizard, uh, the warrior type, has eleven, so they are very uh, vulnerable to everything, and they are, you know, fairly weak in what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, they all tend to have like a kind of an ability that they can, you know, an, a basic attack, and then some sort of thing they can do. Like the squire can shove with their shield and push something back, mm-hmm. um, and and that is kind of fun enough they also give us some rules for leveling them up to to second or third level where you get hit points and you choose a survivor talent mm-hmm. and some of these survivor talents are pretty awesome yeah adrenaline surge at the start of your turn you could choose one creature you can see within 30 feet until the start of your turn you are frightened of that creature and your walking speed is doubled so <laughs> yes you are frightened and boy can you move away from it you know yeah and it's it's just sort of fun and you could even think of some of your own here with the with the understanding is these aren't supposed to be powerful characters right these are supposed to be people that likely won't survive uh but can and so it's sort of a different way to play D. and i would argue that minus these survivor talents it's a good way to teach the game to yeah. start with you yeah. know rather than this list of 27 things you can do at first level it's like hey you know what you you have a sword and you can push and this is your hit points and that's it let's play yeah. now let's build your character since you understand how hit points work how attack rolls work and so on yeah maybe avenge these people or whatever yeah, yeah whether you survived or not yep um i have to also mention desperate scream which is one of the survivor talents whenever you make a saving throw you can summon your desire to live into a summon your desire to live into a desperate scream you get advantage on the saving throw and the scream is audible for up to 100 feet away you can do this twice uh before a long rest and this is just great because you just it's like you're trading off this i want to succeed at this yeah. saving throw but I have alerted anything within 100 feet of me. Yeah. And I, I would actually make this uh, a re-roll rather than a uh, right. advantage. Rather than advantage. But yeah. but because uh, but, uh, I just think it's so fun. It's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. Some of the other talents are kind of you're boring, like, oh, get another spell or whatever. But right. but uh, those two, Adrenaline Surge and, and, yeah. and Desperate Scream, I, I mean, I kind of want more of those because they're just right. they're hilarious to use. Yeah. And they're not, they're not ones you'd want to give the real PCs. Uh, but they're ones that are perfect for this this idea, you know, of people in over their head and out of their depth. 
uh, yeah. trying to survive. So, I mean, wow, Sean, like, I mean, this chapter, uh, strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good, good stuff from the start with helping a DM put together uh, what they need to run a horror adventure. And then with the mechanics that follow up to make it feel like a horror adventure, this is, this is off to a very strong start or a very strong chapter four start. Uh, yeah. So what we'll do next time is we're actually going to go into the adventure itself and look at how the adventure implements these things that this chapter has talked about. And I don't think Teos has read it yet. I haven't read it yet. So we uh, will give you our unbiased look at how the adventure works, both as a starting adventure and as a horror adventure. Yeah. Exciting. So with that, I want to thank everybody for listening, and I want to thank our patrons as well. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP, and you could uh, you know, support us that way, or you can just talk to us, uh, spread the word of Mastering Dungeons, and, uh, and we'd appreciate that. Uh, Teos, you. where can people find you on social media? You can find me at my blog, alphastream.org, and you can find me on Twitter at alphastream. And make sure you sign up for his newsletter because he has been putting out some amazing content lately, That's getting all right. sorts of attention on the social medias. Apparently, uh, DMs are having some trouble with the challenge level of their combats. Really? You, you would, you, I, I've never heard that before <laughs> never in heard that before, any no. edition of D&D. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Or you can follow the podcast's Twitter handle, which is at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of encoded designs. So, Teos, now that we know what horror means, what are we going to do now? We're going to use our adrenaline surge to run away from these monsters because they are way too scary. And I am going to be screaming the entire time. <laughs> Desperately.